0: A talk about a bold approach to love. If you've ever done any research into the culture of the streaming service giant Netflix, you will hear from former employees that it is a very demanding, ruthless, and radically transparent culture. They face many tough decisions every single day, and they're very forthcoming about their culture. You can read about it all on their website. One of the difficult decisions that managers have to engage in practice is called the keeper test. And the keeper test is where managers have to continually ask themselves the question, is my employee's job worth keeping? Is this employee worth fighting for? And if you can honestly answer yes, they stay. And if you say no, they're out. It's just like that. It's very radically transparent. And this practice has resulted in friends firing their friends. It has resulted in former successful executives leaving the company because they could not pass the keeper test. It's a tough question. And it's one that is oftentimes not an easy one to answer. Is this employee's job worth fighting? To keep. That places a whole new level of responsibility on your shoulders, does it not? There is a story in the Bible of an individual who answered a similar question, but he didn't just answer this question, he took it 30,000 times beyond what the answer required. And we're going to take a look at that today. But first, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you will open our hearts and we ask that you will send your Holy Spirit to forgive us of our sins so that we can have a deeper understanding of you and your love for us. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. While you are turning there, let me give you a little background. Our church is going through a Bible reading plan where we are going to read through the entire Bible this year. And every Sabbath, the messages will be based on a portion of the reading that we read for this past week. So in Exodus chapter 32, for the reading for this past week, we did a little bit of reading regarding the sanctuary and the components of the sanctuary. And we also read about the golden calf, which is where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 32. Just to give you a little bit of a history with the golden calf, just not too long ago, a few chapters before, and we talked about this last week, God had met with his people and had outlined the laws that he had for his nation. And the people had consecrated themselves, they humbled themselves, they met with God. And after hearing God out, they thought, you know, God is fair and God is just. And they entered into a contract with him. They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do few chapters now, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses has been up on the mountain for what has seemed like a long time, and the people decided that they needed a visual representation of their God. So they broke commandment number two, and they built a golden calf, and they engaged in all sorts of debauchery and fornication, not long after they had said that they would follow and keep God's law. So we pick up the story here in verse 7. God is up on the mountain talking to Moses. And God tells Moses, go get down. For your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And he goes on to explain to Moses this is what's happening down at the bottom of the mountain. And then in verse 9 it says, the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. God was very angry. It didn't take long for these people to break their end of their contract that they signed with God. So God outlines his plan. I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to start with a clean slate. And Moses, I am going to do it through you. How do you think Moses would have responded to Something like this. God is very forthcoming. He is very bold about what he's going to do. If I was in Moses' shoes, I would have thought, you know what, this doesn't really affect me any, because I haven't sinned. Moses didn't suffer any consequences. He wasn't worshipping the golden calf. He was actually talking with God at that time. Moses had nothing to fear or worry about, and on top of that, God said that he was going to build a nation through Moses. So Moses could have answered God and he could have said, thy will be done. After all, who are you a man to stand up to God and to say otherwise? If this is what God wants, then let him do it. He could have accepted the decision of the divine and he could have said, okay, if that's what you decide to do, then do it. After all, the people got what was coming to them anyway. But let's read Moses' response in verse 11. Moses pleads with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? So Moses tells God, God, these are your people and look at how much you have done for them already. You have pulled them out of Egypt. You have led them through the wilderness. You have taken them to this point. Are you going to discard them that easily? Then he goes on in verse 12, Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. So Moses understood how communication would work if God were to destroy his people. All the people that heard about what happened in the wilderness would immediately conclude that God saved his people from the Egyptians only to destroy them in the desert. They wouldn't take into account the larger context of what happened. They wouldn't say, oh, you know, there's probably a good reason why God did what he did, because the Israelites broke their contract. You know, it's ironic, because in today's world, if two or more parties enter into a binding agreement and one side breaks that part of the agreement, Whatever consequences that follow that may happen to fall on the party that broke it seems well-deserved. I mean, who would argue with someone who broke their end of the agree- agreement and say, you didn't deserve this? After all, they, they put their name on the dotted line. They agreed to this, and as a result, they have to face whatever consequences that may result from breaking the agreement. But yet, when it comes to God, it seems like we flip the script. We blame God for when he keeps his end of the agreement and the people don't. And Moses knew that this was how word was going to travel. Moses was so concerned about God's name and God's reputation that he said, look, Lord, people are going to miss out on the larger context. They're going to think you are evil. Don't do this. But then he goes on in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will be given to your descendants. So Moses reminds God, God, you made a promise to my ancestors that you were going to bless them, that you were going to make a great nation of them. So Moses here is clearly not concerned about himself. He is concerned about about God. He is concerned about God's name, his reputation, and more importantly, God's people. What a contrast! What a change! Because this was the same guy who years before told God, God, I do not have the guts to speak up to Pharaoh. But look at the transformation! Now he's got the guts to speak up to God. Talk about timidity being transformed into tenacity. Moses was being persistent with God for the sake of God's people. And God had already revealed that these people were disposable, that God could start all over. So why is it worth fighting for them? So the Lord relents, and he says he would not do the harm to his people. And then we kind of read through the story. Moses comes down. He's very angry. He breaks the tablets. He makes the people drink golden calf drink, which is very interesting. But encapsulated within this story of sin, we see a glimmer of hope. We see a call for repentance. Verse 26, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. So even though the Israelites had sinned, there was still an opportunity to turn around. There was still an opportunity to repent. And this is very important as we keep reading through the Old Testament. We are going to see many instances where it seems like God is vicious. But if you look closely, you will almost always find that there is still an opportunity to turn around from your ways. Unfortunately, 3,000 people chose not to repent, and they lost their lives that day. But the story wasn't over. Moses went back up to the mountain. He told the people, you need to humble yourselves. I'm going to go up to the mountain, and I'm going to make atonement for you. So Moses goes back up up the mountain, like an experienced mountain climber that he is. And in verse 31, he returns to the Lord, and he says, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Moses doesn't try to sugarcoat what the Israelites did. What they did was wrong. That's an accepted fact of this story. But Moses goes on and he says, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of the book which you have written. Talk about a bold approach. Here was somebody that did not worship the calf, who had nothing to lose really in this instance, and he is not just putting his life on the line, he is putting his eternal life on the line. Lord, forgive your people, but if not, take me out of your book. What a boldness that Moses is practicing here. It's very easy to think about Moses being the savior in this story, but Moses knew God. Moses had been spending time with God. So when God says something like this, Moses was thinking, something's not right. This does not sound like God's character. And he challenges God. And he even puts his eternal life on the line, pleading with God, Lord, these are your people. Please forgive them of their sins." Moses boldly approached the throne of grace because he knew, at that time, the Israelites needed that grace. Thrones are not a regular fixture in our society today. The closest thing I can think of that seems relevant is the Oval Office. You know, the Oval Office is not something you can waltz your way into and say, "'Hello, I'm here.' You have to go through a long and secure process. Secret service guards around every corner. Gated community and surveillance technology that's there to make sure that you're approved to approach the Oval Office. In fact, if you remember the story of Queen Esther, remember Queen Esther could not approach the king, her husband, unless she was summoned for fear of death. But then when we go here to Hebrews 4.16, we see that the author is encouraging people to not just approach the throne of grace, but to boldly approach the throne of grace. It's an open throne, open for those that want to approach it. And what does the throne have to offer? It's there to offer grace. It's there to offer mercy in the times that you need it. It's an open invitation. Go, but don't just approach the throne. Boldly approach the throne. Contrast the response of Moses To the response of Jonah. We know the story of Jonah. Swallowed by a big fish because he tried to run away, but then he eventually makes his way to Nineveh. And his task? Tell the people of Nineveh that they are going to be destroyed because they have sinned. So Jonah does his diligent duty like a very obedient employee, and he tells Nineveh that they are going to die. And then once he is done, he leaves the city and finds a box office seat ready to watch the fireworks. And then when the fireworks don't come, Jonah gets very angry. And you can read about the exchange between Jonah and God in that last chapter of the book of Jonah. You see, Jonah had completely missed the point. He had heard God's words, but he completely missed God's character. The people of Nineveh repented, so why shouldn't God show them mercy? And unlike Moses, Moses was willing to give up his eternal life to save God's people. But you can read about it in Jonah. Jonah was so angry, he was so angry, he wanted to die because God did not kill his people that repented. What a sharp contrast between someone that understood the words of God but completely missed God's character and someone that had been spending so much time with God and understood his character. Sometimes we think of... We think of God as a bloodthirsty killing machine. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, the God of the Old Testament? What's what's that supposed to mean? In any context that I've heard it in, it's always referred to a God that is bloodthirsty, a God that is always killing. And when you read through the thousands of years of history in the Old Testament, you might get that impression. Wow, it seems like God is always killing. But this is not the God that... Is true of the Old Testament. It's a completely different God because God is a very merciful and gracious God. It was there in the sanctuary. You can you can read about it. In the Ark of the Covenant, where was the law of God kept? It was kept inside. Okay, you can look at the picture, it'll tell you. <laughs> the, law, the, the law of God was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. And where did God's glory rest? It rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So wherever you were in that Israelite camp, if you looked up and you saw the cloud by day or the fire by night, you knew that God was there. But what did God's glory rest on specifically? What was the name of that covering that was on the Ark of the Covenant? It was the mercy seat. It was baked right into the sanctuary, which is the outline for the entire plan of salvation. Psalm 89:14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne mercy and grace mercy and truth go before your face Matthew 9:13 Jesus says I desire mercy not sacrifice God is a merciful God and you see that in the Old Testament It reminds me of a book I read a while ago about an author who went through some of the popular stories in the Old Testament the stories that people attribute to God as being a ruthless and bloodthirsty God. And it's called A Strange Place for Grace. If you have the time, check it out. It's a really quick read. But it talks about how in these instances where it seems like there is no hope, we see God's grace just come through and come through very powerfully. God is not a bloodthirsty God. In fact, he's not looking for your blood. He gave his blood so that you could be saved. God is a merciful God. And Moses knew that God could offer grace and mercy, which is why he approached the throne of grace. He boldly approached the throne of grace. Moses actually wasn't the first person to approach the throne of grace. You you may remember the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. The Lord was walking through one day, and Abraham... Becomes hospitable to God, and they talk and they have a conversation. And then just as they're about to leave, in Genesis 18, verses 17 through 21, we see God tell Moses or God tell Abraham about his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, two very wicked cities whose cup had been filled. It was so bad in those cities that it had reached a point where if they had been allowed to exist, they would have become a cancer to the entire world. They would have been harmful. So God was going to go bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham has some family in Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew Lot and Lot's family are there in Sodom. And so Abraham hears of God's plan to go visit Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy them. But notice what Abraham says in In verse 22, the men turned away from them and went towards Sodom and Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then the following verses reveal that Abraham has a little negotiation with God. If there's at least 50 people in the city, will you spare the city? And God gives them his word. If there are 50 good people in the city, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Feeling a little bit more emboldened, Abraham brings the number down, all the way down to 10. And God gives his word to Abraham, if there are 10 righteous people in the city, I will not destroy the city for their sake. Abraham could have gone down to one, and God would have probably said, I will not destroy the city if there is one person. But the odds were probably in Abraham's favor, as far as he thought, in a large city as Sodom, in a smaller, large city as Gomorrah, there's got to be ten people. So he stopped right there. And you know how the story plays out. There weren't even ten righteous people. But the fact that Abraham was interceding for two very wicked cities who deserved to pretty much be wiped off the face of the earth is very bold. The fact that Abraham would go up to God and say, okay, instead of saying, Lord, your will will be done. He says, Lord, you're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. I know you. I know your character. And he stands up to God, and he brings that number down to 10 for the sake of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's because Abraham knew in Romans 5.20 that wherever sin abounded, grace abounded much more. If there was any place to find grace it would be in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, ironically, because that's not the first things we think of when we think about those cities. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, and Abraham knew that they needed grace. And he approached the throne of grace for their sake. Unlike Moses and unlike Abraham, Jacob was an individual who, approach the throne of grace for himself. In Genesis chapter 32, we can read about the exchange right here. So the background behind Jacob, we read this, I think, last month in January. But Jacob had stolen a birthright from Esau, dishonestly, and fearing for his life, he ran away from home. He had been away from home for so long, but now he was making the journey back with a large caravan, with a large family. God had indeed blessed Jacob. There's just one problem. Jacob, in order to get back home, has to pass through Edom, which is his brother's country. So Jacob is very nervous because he remembers the last time he was with Esau and things didn't go over very well. And now Jacob is scared for his life, but he's also scared for the lives of his family. His past sins had put his current family's lives in danger. He is so scared that On his way back, he is strategizing, he's trying to think, how can I increase the odds of saving my family? So he he divides his family into two different camps, thinking, well, if Esau attacks one group, then the other group will have a chance to escape. What a horrible situation to put yourself in. Can you imagine dividing up your family in two, knowing that possibly half of them could be gone? It just makes me sick thinking about what Jacob went through. And Jacob knew this. Genesis chapter 32, Jacob was on his way, and the angels of God met with him. Then we read through, and he, Jacob sends out messengers to see what's going on with Esau. And he finds out that Esau is coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. So of course that makes Jacob nervous. And he goes on, and he prays earnestly to God. You can read about it in verses 9 through 12. Then he splits up his family, and sometime in the middle of the night, Jacob and his family is crossing a river. They're crossing a river, and it's nighttime, and it's dark, and Jacob must have been pulling up the rear because he all of a sudden is by himself, and then out of nowhere this being comes and starts wrestling with Jacob. And they wrestle and tussle back and forth all night long. All night long. And then just as the day is about to break, the other person says, okay, let me go because the day is about to break. And read, read Jacob's response in Genesis 32, verses 26. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let go of you. I will not stop until you can guarantee that you will bless me, that you will forgive me. Talk about boldness. If I, was in the, if I was somewhere in the middle of a river in the middle of the night and I realized that I was wrestling with God, I would give up. Because let's be real, do I stand a chance against wrestling against God? mm No way. But Jacob, he doesn't care about the odds. He is not letting go until he gets a blessing from God. He believed. And he needed grace. He needed mercy for his past sins. And as a result, those sins had endangered his family, and he was not willing to let go. And the story is so powerful because Jacob gets what he was wrestling for. His name is changed from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel. His sins are forgiven, his brother doesn't kill him, and everything is all right. But talk about a bold approach to wrestle with God all night to receive a blessing. So, the moral of the story is you can boldly approach the throne of grace, because there is mercy and grace to help in times of need. But I can't stop right there, because it sounds a little cliche to say, be bold, you know? A far more important question to ask is, how can we boldly approach the throne of grace? I can read about these stories and think, oh, I mean, that's great that they did it. But where did they get this boldness from? How were they able to just look into God and say, I need grace, I need mercy for these people, for my family, for myself. Where does that boldness come from? And what's interesting is that in each of these stories, there is a pattern, there is an indicator that reveals what happens before that boldness comes into play. In the story of Moses, Moses had been up on the mountain with God for so long. In Deuteronomy chapter nine, you can read, he was recounting the whole story. He says, I was with God for 40 days and 40 nights, face to face with God, getting to know him, communing with him, having a conversation with him, becoming friends with him. So when God says he's going to do something like that, Moses can see right through, and he says, no, God, this is not you. This is not what you really mean. And he challenges God. He gets bold because he knows God. In Genesis 18 with Abraham, Abraham had been spending time with God before God left. And it's, this is really cool. This stood out to me when I was reading about it. But in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 18, we, we, we see a little glimpse into the mind of God, into the thoughts of God. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then he goes on, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household, and so on and so forth. But isn't that really neat to get a glimpse into the mind of God? God is having a conversation within himself. Should I share my plans with my friend Abraham, who knows me, who I know? That reveals such a deep intimacy that Abraham had with God. They had a close relationship with each other. So Abraham boldly approaches God. Shall you destroy, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Because he knows God. And then the same idea with Jacob. Jacob was in deep prayer and supplication before he wrestled with God. And then he wrestles with God all night because he knew that God could give him a blessing and he knew that he needed it. It was a time of need for Jacob and he was not willing to let go until he got the grace that Jesus had to offer him. In all of these scenarios, the boldness is always preceded by by spending quality time with God. The boldness is a result of knowing the person that you need to be bold with. In other words, it's easier to be bold with someone you know. The principle is not really that unique. Let me give you an elementary example. If I just met you, and you invite me to come to your house, I will be so polite that I will not sit down on any chair or any couch unless you explicitly say, please take a seat. I just met you. I'm not going to walk into your house and act like I own the place. I will ask you if I can use your restroom. I'm not just going to use it. But now if I was more comfortable with you and I had gotten to know you, okay, I, w- I would let down my guard a little. I'd be a little bit more open. I'd come in and I'd sit down without you asking me to. I would even use your restroom if I needed to go instead of asking for permission. I might even open your fridge and pull out the hot sauce. Who knows? <laughs> but people that you are more comfortable with, people that you have engaged and re- earned a mutual understanding with, are people that make you a little bit more comfortable. And you can be a little bit more bolder as a result. I know I'm bolder, or I'm more open around people that I know I can relax a little bit because I know them and they know me. We have this understanding with each other. If I just met you, I don't know you, um, I'll be polite and very respectful. Now, I'm not trying to say that in order to boldly approach a throne of grace, you need to reach this imaginary threshold with God. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. You can boldly approach God at any time. The throne of grace is available for those that are in a time of need. You can boldly approach it at any time. The point I'm trying to make is it's easier to be bold when you know the person you need to be bold with because you've built up that trust. You've built up that relationship. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. In closing today, I'd like to ask everybody to stand with me. My appeal is simple. With every head bowed and eyes closed, my appeal is for the Jacobs, the Abrahams, and the Moseses out there. Maybe some of you might find yourself in Jacob's shoes, where you need grace and you need mercy for yourself. Maybe things you have done in the past have endangered you in the present, or they've endangered your family, and you want to boldly approach the throne of grace, to not let go until you receive the blessing that God has to offer you, if you find yourselves in that camp, I want to invite you to come to the front. Lord, I want to boldly approach the throne of grace because I know that there is a blessing to be received. If that is you, I want to invite you to come to the front. Maybe there are Abrahams out there. You may not necessarily need grace for yourself, but you need grace for your family, for other people. And you want to boldly approach the throne of grace so that God will have mercy on those people. If you're in that situation, I want to invite you to come to the front for the Abrahams out there. Or maybe you might be like Moses, where you know that God's people, everyone that lives on this planet, they are in need of grace, they are in need of mercy. And maybe you've never thought about boldly approaching the throne of grace. Maybe you've casually prayed and read a couple of promises, but you want to be bold like Moses. You want the timidity within you to be transformed into persistence. And you want to boldly approach the throne of grace because you believe that there is grace and there is mercy to be offered in that time of need. If that's your desire for God's people, come to the front. I invite you. It's not always easy, but praise the Lord that he has given us a throne that can be accessed. Praise the Lord that there is a throne that is available to help us in our time of need. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us a throne of grace. Thank you so much for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you for desiring mercy over sacrifice. And thank you that even in these tough instances in the Bible where we read about the judgment, thank you so much for providing a way of repentance. And Lord, I just ask and pray especially for the people that have come to the front today. You know their situation. And they have expressed a desire to boldly approach you, to have a deep and intimate understanding of your love and your character that they want to seize the blessing. They are looking for grace. They are looking for mercy in their situations. I ask, Lord, that you will bless them, that you'll be with them, and that they will continue to grow and have a closer relationship with you so that being bold becomes second nature. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the throne of grace. Thank you for encouraging us that it's a throne that we can boldly approach and help us to live our lives knowing that you are there to offer grace and mercy in our times of need. Thank you for hearing and answer our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.